The 920 KBEC Podcast Network is presented by the Slow County Real Estate Podcast with House Swayze. Up-to-date information on the local real estate market on your time. New episodes weekly at the podcast link at 920kvec.com and wherever you get your podcasts. California DRE 0111911. All right, uh, Craig, thank you. We're keeping an eye on the traffic. If there are any uh, updates, we'll go to Craig immediately and we'll uh, just keep you posted. It's uh, Friday, February 24th, 2023. Dave Congleton with you. In about an hour, we're going to um, talk about the world of virtual reality. Uh, We're going to preempt the open line tonight because of all the events involving Ukraine. It's been quite the week. President Biden went to Ukraine. We heard major speeches by both the president and also President Putin. Mitch McConnell came out today urging... uh, America and its allies to stand up to the thuggery of Russia. Uh, Of course, today is the anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. There's no other way to term that, in my opinion. It is what it is. So we have been very grateful for Professor James Armstead checking in on a regular basis to update us on the Ukraine and world situation. So it's only appropriate that he joins us today on the anniversary. Professor, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Dave. How are you? We're good, sir. Thank you for your time. So much to ask you. Let's just start with the big visit. President Biden had a surprise visit to Ukraine earlier in the week. He took some flack from some people. I thought it was pretty courageous and very appropriate for him to go. What do you think? Well, I'm I'm in absolute agreement with that. He flies to to Poland, then takes a 10-hour train ride, spends five hours in Ukraine talking to President Zelensky uh, and touring the city. He went around the city. The earth, the, um, the, 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 air, the anti-air alarms went off while he was there. So there was an air raid siren that, that did go off. Uh, there was a good deal of worry. Uh, and then, of course, a 10-hour train back before uh, getting back to Poland, before dealing with the, um, a, a group of European leaders and letting them know our resolve. I would say three things about Mr. Biden this week. Courage, consistency, and confidence. He was, it, this was excellent leadership. You have to tell people where you're taking them. And I think he was pretty clear about that in both his actions and his speeches. Well, and just follow up on that, please. What about the speech that he delivered in Warsaw? I, I think that was excellent. It focused the attention that all of us, meaning all of us in the West, all of NATO, but all of us in the West beyond NATO. We've got 53 nations now that are in what uh, Secretary Austin calls the frontline nations supporting the Ukraine, that keeping constancy with that group is important. This is not just a Western, it's not just an EU, it's not just a NATO exercise, but this is the Western world saying to Mr. Putin, this is unlawful activity, it's illegal, violates international law, you are guilty of, of this, this waging an aggressive war, and of course the other serious war crimes over, of, above which are 50,000 incidents now, more than 50,000 incidents Incidences of, uh, of, of alleged violations, gross violations of international law, and we're not going to tolerate it. A civilized world cannot afford to tolerate this kind of behavior by any nation. Now, also during this week, uh, President Putin gave a speech. How do you compare the two? Yes. 
Well, Mr. Putin gave, uh, you know, he fancies himself some sort of historian. His, his, his degree is in law, but he fancies himself a historian. He has purportedly written a number of things, uh, both before the war started and since, where he talks about the Ukraine not being, and Belarus for that matter, not being a separate nation from Russia, that these are the Russian people just in other uh, constitutionalities, that uh, they put themselves together in particular groups, but they are really Russians, and he wants to bring those back under the um, under the Russian umbrella. He's, he, so he gives that view of history. He also states that, that he's winning, that Russia is winning the war, that it's taken a bit longer than uh, was initially thought. Uh, that may be an admission that things haven't gone perfectly, uh, if we read between the lines with that, I think. And But he lets the Russian people know that he is defending them and bringing all of their people back together. So the same false narrative uh, that we've heard in the past. And I think he's trying to bolster up his own people. I think there's there's some cracks in the armor, if you will, that he's had some political disagreements on the inside. Uh, we've dismissed an intelligence chief some months ago. Uh, there's been a rearrangement of the generals who were commanding out in the field. He brings his, the chief of staff of the army down to uh, Ukraine and makes him the, uh, the theater commander, if you will, the theater of Ukraine, where they're fighting. And, of course, uh, the other things that he's had to do, the, uh, the draft uh, where he brings back uh, more than 300,000 uh, troops uh, who've been people who've been trained. They're in the reserves. They've been trained. They're coming back in. But remember, some of them are coming back after being out of the military for 20 years. And some went right into the combat. About half went into training and half go right into combat to those units that have been uh, decimated over the uh, the last year. And of course, there's increasing reliance on the Wagner Group. Those are the people at Bakhmut, uh, which is where the really difficult fighting has been going on in the last uh, three months in the uh, uh, in the eastern portion of the uh, the country down at the the south of Donbas, where Donbas and the uh, the state of the, the two other states, Zaporizhia and Kershaw, come together. So that area in the middle between the old Russian enclave uh, that they've been occupying partially since 2014 and this new area that they've conquered since the uh, the attack uh, last year on beginning on the 24th. All right, so there's Putin and there's Biden. The third voice that came out this week is Mitch McConnell, who just today, it's not an exact quote, but he is urging the United States and its allies to stand strong. He is total support of what Biden is doing. And here he is the Republican leader in the Senate. Are you surprised by Mitch McConnell's words? Well, I'm not surprised, but I am thankful. Mitch McConnell has been supportive of the Biden policy in dealing with Ukraine more or less consistently since this started. He's been behind the president. Uh, he is not giving him, giving him a hard time about either the amounts of money that were given or the style in which the administration has conducted its efforts. Now, the rest of the Republican Party have grumbled from the very beginning that, first, it's too much money. Second, it's money that's sent without any regard to making sure it's being spent properly We've certainly heard that. And then there's the argument about where this will end. Well, with all three of those, I think the, uh, the naysayers have had a false narrative. First, we were not just handing buckets of money loosely to the Ukrainians. 
most of what the Ukrainians have gotten from us are arms and armaments, ammunition. That's what they're getting. Remember, that puts people to work in the United States. If you provide an M1A1, either a, uh, an early one, an A1, or an A2 or A3, an upgrade, people in Lima, Ohio, where General uh, Dynamics makes the M1A1 and the, the the Marine Corps amphibious vehicle, that matter, it's made on a line across the uh, factory from the M1. Uh, that's money that goes to Americans. So we are providing arms and armaments rather than just buckets of cash. We also have people in the Ukraine. The FBI has been there for a while looking at corruption issues uh, to help the Ukrainians in terms of reorganizing their own their own government uh, uh, investigatory agencies to try to help with the uh, the notorious problems that they've had with uh, with corruption. So that's been going on for some time. For, for 10 years or so, we've had people there working on that. And then finally, that our European allies are participating with us. They have been with us along the way. And I think Secretary Austin has developed the, uh, the front-line states, as he calls them, 53 we're up to now, uh, nations from around the world, not not just Western Europe, but from around the world, including our allies in Australia and Japan and South Korea, who are supporting uh, this effort. And McConnell standing behind what is a united effort amongst our allies and the frontline states to support the administration demonstrates the resolve of the United States, not just one political party or one political faction, but this is the will of the United States. We recognize that this is part of our own defense. Okay. It's not just giving money to the Ukrainians. We are in conversation with Professor James Armstead as we mark one year anniversary of the invasion of the Ukraine by Russia. Uh, we'll be back. We'll uh, check in with Craig and get an update on the traffic and continue our conversation as well. You're listening to The Dave Congleton Show. 520 on News Talk 920 KVEC. Let's check in with Craig Hill for a traffic update. Craig, what's happening? Yeah, it is extremely slow around the Central Coast, North County from uh, Niblick to San Anselmo, and then Monterey and San Luis down to uh, Main Street in Santa Maria, all jammed up. And it looks like we just got a closure. It looks like here as of uh, five, about five o'clock, of the uh, grapevine full closure there due to weather conditions. So all that traffic is going to be coming here now. And yeah, the roads are going to be even worse. Yeah. All right, uh, Craig, we're keeping an eye on that. We'll have another traffic update for you after news at the bottom of the hour. Meanwhile, we continue our primary conversation with uh, Dr. Armstead, marking the uh, one-year anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. As we're back with you, Professor, the obvious question, here we are on the anniversary. Where do we stand on this issue? Let's start with the Russians. They obviously are surprised, disappointed. They thought this was going to be over quickly. Yes, I think that's right. The, um, the the Russian initial invasion was a operational plan, very much like for those of your listeners who are familiar with Operation Market Garden in the Second World War, a thrust by British forces north uh, into uh, into the Netherlands, uh, dropping airborne troops 
uh, fairly far north, then launching an armored column to meet up with them to uh, to seal off that particular operation. Well, the Russian airborne uh, dropped in on three major airports around the 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 capital area around Kiev, and then armored columns came down the uh, the ninety kilometers uh, between Belarus and on both sides of the Dnieper uh, between Belarus and the capital. They were expecting that 90-kilometer operation to link up with the paratroopers, take down the capital, probably uh, uh, relieving and replacing the regime, uh, putting in a uh, either a Russian regime or a puppet Ukrainian regime that would sue for peace, let them have some of the other areas they want. At the same time that was going on in that first three weeks, the, uh, the Russians... Um, moved to the west out of uh, the two northern provinces, northeastern provinces of Dohansk and Lugansk, what, what collectively call the Donbass region, so the, uh, the, the northeastern corner of Ukraine. So they came out from the uh, separatist-held areas uh, in, uh, oh, about 40 miles or so, uh, and then attacked south, sealing off the, uh, making a land bridge to the, along the Sea of Azov and connecting Russia physically through Donbass, Lugansk, uh, Zaporizhia, and then, of course, into the Kershaw area that would connect Crimea. So they would have all of eastern Ukraine. So that went on in that, that first bit of the war. Well, once the uh, after the three weeks or so, the Russian armored column, we have all those pictures, 40 miles, uh, 40 to 60 miles long, of tanks, of trucks, of troops that were trapped on the roads because of the weather. Remember, this started on that one year ago. The 24th of February, we have uh, the 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 mud condition uh, that. Uh, that is so prevalent in that part of the uh, of the winter. Yes, we have this. Uh, I'm I'm sorry. No, I'm, I'm agreeing with you. Oh, okay. We we <laughs> we have this this that really seal things off uh, there. And uh, then, of course, the uh, the uh, we, we push back the uh, the Ukrainians push back the uh, the Russians uh, on that corridor coming down from the north. That's 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 done in about a month or so. That's done in a month. Then Russian forces redeploy. They the second phase of the war, they redeploy. They try to support this area that they've taken uh, in the far eastern part of the country. And so then we have a World War II type situation where uh, artillery duels are going on, tank duels. Uh, it's a war of maneuver, if you will, uh, for about uh, five or six months, begins to settle down in May. The the Ukrainians consolidate, uh, and then they drive on particular places, getting some territory back, and particularly a focused strategic attack where they go after rail towns with rail junctions and road junctions so they can begin other operations. So they take back uh, about 50% of the territory they had lost since uh, since February. That that happens between May and August. August, we go into this fourth phase, uh, a more static warfare. Now it begins to look like World War One. We settle down in trenches, and we've been fighting that way since with uh, with sporadic attacks along that uh, 
the, the FIBA, the forward edge of the battle area, where these forces face each other. There have been certain certainly attacks across those areas. Uh, cities, medium-sized cities, were uh, were taken and lost uh, in this period since yeah. September but or so. With two minutes to go before the news break, Professor, the question I'm trying to get to is whether or not you see a change in Russia's resolve, because this has not well, gone as they have planned. No, it, it, it's not a long-term plan that they started with, but it appears to be now that the Russians have made up their minds to hold the land area they've got. So they've, they've dug this trench line in, they've hardened these areas, knowing the, uh, the same mathematical equation applies to them as applied to the Ukrainians at the initial attack. You need about three to one to take a defended position. So if you've got an army more or less the same size as the Ukrainians, but you're in the defense now, you're not attacking, you're trying to hold the ground you've taken, the Ukrainians have to come up with combat power roughly three to one to take those areas. I don't think the Ukrainians are trying to take it all. I think they're going after certain specific strategic points because they want to free up the, uh, the their, their avenue to the Sea of Azov. Uh, they want to do that. They want to uh, strengthen their their uh, their attack on, on Kurzhan. T- they took the city, but the territory around it, that's the area that's the, uh, the gateway to Crimea, if you will. And that's where the Russians are strengthening as much as possible to be able to hold off from a Ukrainian assault. Uh, one and minute, of course, getting ready for their own counteroffensive. Right. And, and is one minute to go. You see that counteroffensive happening? That counteroffensive has already started. And the, the, the way counteroffensives start, along, we're talking a battle line that's more than 600 miles from the Russian-Ukrainian border all the way down to Crimea, that more than 600 miles. And along the way, there are various junctions of railroads and of roads that are important for both sides to hold. The Russians, because they support by rail, they bring in their supplies and their troops and their tanks by railroad. They need railheads to launch their attacks. The Ukrainians are fighting by road. They need to have roads to bring their trucks, to bring their towed and self-propelled artillery, to bring armored vehicles forward. So they're both jockeying for position, and we're seeing the Russians with probing attacks, trying to see where the Ukrainians are weak, where they can break through the line. And the Ukrainians, in some ways, are doing the same thing. So I would say the counteroffensives have started in both cases. We are in conversation with Dr. James Armstead as we mark the one-year anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. We've got news and critically traffic. Craig will give us an update. It's a mess out there. We'll tell you what we know. We'll take your phone calls for Dr. Armstead and continue the conversation. I'm Dave Congleton. This is Hometown Radio. Where Craig's keeping an eye on the traffic, we'll keep you posted throughout the next hour with any uh, changes in the traffic situation. I'm Dave Congleton. We're marking the one-year anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. We get perspective from Dr. Armstead, who's been with us throughout the year on this. If you want to join in the conversation, feel free to, 805-543-8830. We'll take your phone calls. We'll read your text messages. If you just want to listen, that's fine, too. Although, Professor, as we're back with you, forgive me if I've, remind me if I've gotten this wrong, but I could swear that last May, on this broadcast, you said that this was going to end quickly. I did. 
the 9th of May was my prediction for when the incursion would end. That the uh, the Russians would look. They Putin likes anniversaries. He, he is personally tied to anniversaries. The ninth of May, of course, is Victory Day in the uh, the, the defense of the motherland, the great uh, the great motherland war, World, what we call World War Two. That's the great motherland war for them. Uh, if I'd been working for Putin, I would have suggested to him very strongly, look, we've got what we want. We have Donuts, Lugansk. We've got most of those provinces. Uh, and we've got some of the area going down toward um, uh, toward Crimea, a, a land bridge, if you will, along the Sea of Azov. We should stop shooting right there, declare a ceasefire, and declare victory. And let the um, Ukrainians know we're willing to talk. It would shift the emphasis, make them continue the fight if they wanted to do that. But Russia would essentially have what it wanted. I stick by that. That's what they should have done. That's what a rational actor would have done. They'd be much better off than they are now. They hold a bit more territory, but it's all contested. On the, it is all contested. On the Stolberg-Tatum text line, question number one, what is Dr. Armstead's take on China's proposed peace plan ceasefire proposition? What did they propose, and what do you think of it? Well, essentially, the Chinese uh, today have made a, uh, and, and it's a proposal. It's nothing really new, nothing we haven't seen before. They are saying the war should end with a ceasefire. They are also volunteering to be the, uh, if you will, the, the 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 broker in this, the uh, the just broker that they could establish uh, their uh, bona fides in terms of of being the um, the negotiator for both sides here and. And then, of course, they are making a very strong statement that they have not condemned the Russians, which is true. They have not condemned. The only condemnation we've, we've had is about nuclear weapons, that it was intolerable if the Russians used tactical nukes when we were hearing that in the early summer when the Russians started losing uh, on the field. We, we heard that from them, and the Chinese condemned that particular tactical option. So we haven't seen really anything new that the uh, the Chinese thought it could be settled. Right. And we have to remember the Chinese overall view of Russia uh, being an irredentist nation that is trying to take back territory that used to be yours is that they have exactly the same issue with Taiwan. So their point of view toward Russia taking Ukraine uh, is essentially the same point of view about themselves that they have the right to take Taiwan. Right. So we're not seeing anything essentially new with the uh, Chinese. Also, so the, he's responded, by the okay. way. Also on the Stolberg-Tatum Stolberg text line, I'm hearing that the U.S. is burning through weapons so fast we could be at a real disadvantage in a conflict with China. Well, here's the thing that you have to look at. We are burning through. It appears as though artillery shells, the Ukrainians are firing somewhere between six and 10,000 shells a day. So that's a very high rate. We are not producing at that level. I mentioned earlier that it's not just money we're handing them, but it's primarily large transfers of armaments. Now, they are getting some money, but large transfers of our armaments. One of the things that we have been forced to do is we draw down and give the Ukrainians things from the American defense perspective, we need to be able to replace the arms and the ammunition that we're passing along. We've also had to go to our industrial base and speed up 
the production of, uh, of, of, of ammunition and, and of weapons, too, for that matter. Now, some of the things that we're doing that we need to understand, that, that shells, 155 shells are the principal shell that we are providing in terms of artillery. We've given them the, uh, the M777 uh, and, uh, and self-propelled 155s as well. Now, the, the ammunition we provide them, we first go to our older stocks. Ammunition has a shelf life. You can only keep it so long. The propellant chemically deteriorates, and you have to keep up with the uh, uh, with the warheads themselves. That they have a shelf life. Additionally, so we're providing things that we would have to spend money in taking apart and rebuilding. So we're sending things out that would come off the shelf anyway that we would lose. If we increase as we are doing our industrial capacity and start producing more, that keeps us strong so that we're not drawing down and weakening ourselves and, and tactically. All right, Dr. Armstead on this broadcast, 805-543-8830, as we mark the one-year anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. I read earlier Senator McConnell's reaction to all this, urging us to stand strong and stand united and continue supporting Ukraine. What about House Republicans, Professor, and are they wavering at all? And what about Kevin McCarthy? The House Republicans are grumbling. They're grumbling, uh, as I mentioned earlier, first about the amounts, that, you know, there's so much money is being spent. I don't think they're looking at that in terms of what this does to production in America, that it's allowing us to renew our own stocks at a higher level and keeping us stronger. Uh, Two, they're looking at the, 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 the limits of this. How far does it go? Where does it go? Only as a transfer to the Ukraine, they're not looking at what's the strategic value of the Ukrainians fighting the Russian aggression and slowing it down in terms of making NATO uh, progressively and in balance stronger because the Russians have obviously weakened themselves by having 75, 80 percent of their combat forces committed to this one operation that they are losing. That makes NATO proportionately stronger. So this is part of American defense and needs to be looked at in an overall strategic balance. On the Stolberg Tatum text line, you addressed this a little bit, but follow up, please. A listener wants your reaction to what Putin's speech revealed. Well, I think it revealed two things. And this, in some ways, ties in with the Russian, with the Chinese peace initiative today. I don't think that's out of clear blue sky. I think the Russians, if either prompted this or at least knew it was coming and agreed to it. And it says, I think, that Putin recognizes that despite what he's saying about, you know, we're winning, in the long term we'll win, we've got more stick to itiveness than the Ukrainians. What we're really seeing is that that isn't true, and he recognizes that. He admitted that the operation had not gone as initially planned, but that, of course, the Russians had regrouped and done this, that, and the other to make things happen. I don't think we saw a clear, coherent message as to where they were going, what they would do, and a new time frame. At the very beginning, he gave us a time frame. It's going to be three weeks. He's not doing that. Let's take a call. we got Alan in San Luis. Hi, Alan. Hi, Dave. Hi, Doctor. Hi. They were mentioning in the news today about China possibly giving arms to Russia. 
And what have well, you heard about that? Well, I didn't mention that, that but uh, that, that has been discussed. What do you think I about that? I didn't say that, but that has been discussed. What do you think about that, Doctor? Uh, well, the uh, we have warned, the president in his speech in, uh, in Poland warned that if the Chinese provide what's called lethal aid, that means uh, arms and ammunition that are used in the Russian attack, you know, not just defense items like air defense or radars, things like that, but uh, T-62s, T-80s, T-90 tanks, that sort of thing. If the the Chinese do, were to do that, there would be repercussions. And I think principally right now we would be talking about sanctions. And I think that's pretty much where our 53 frontline nations stand, that if the Chinese actively participated in providing Russia the wherewithal to continue the war, that we would respond. Alan. Yeah, well, see, my concern is China first says, oh, we'll help you broker a peace negotiation. But here, here's some armaments for Russia. That's, <laughs> I can't say that's totally consistent. Do we expect China to be consistent, well, Professor? If, if you're expecting me to defend Chinese foreign policy as one being logical or two being moral, I declined. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> the other part was... What's it look like in terms of fighter aircraft? Are we sending or who's sending fighter aircraft to Ukraine? Well, that's pretty quiet right now. It's certainly being discussed among the allies. Here's the thing you need to remember. The Russians have something like 6,000 frontline fighter and fighter-bomber aircraft. Uh, among the NATO allies, now this doesn't include the Quad out in the Pacific, among the NATO allies it's more than 40,000. So the Russians know that they are not capable of fighting an air war against NATO. So that does two things with the war in the Ukraine. They want to conserve their airplanes as, as much as possible. So if there's an, an operation where you can use cruise missiles, artillery, or airplanes, mm-hmm. they will choose to use cruise missiles and artillery because every airplane they lose, that weakens them in terms of dealing with NATO long term. Yeah. The skies are not theirs. The skies are contested. Uh, so they don't have uh, they don't they have air parity. That is, they can't go anywhere they want to with uh, with, with with freedom that their airplanes will not be attacked by anti aircraft systems. But neither can the Ukrainians. Right. So we we call this contested airspace. Fair enough, Alan. Thanks for checking in eight zero five five four three eight eight three zero for Professor Armstead. We'll come back for a final segment and another check of traffic. I'm Dave Congleton on Hometown Radio. Craig, thank you. We'll have an update for you after news at the top of the hour in our final segment with Dr. Armstead. Andrew's in San Luis on KVEC. Hi, Andrew. Hi, I just wanted to say uh, a whole bunch of stuff. Actually, first thing, the war started in 2014 when we overtook their, overthrew their government of Ukraine and installed our puppet government, or our, our, uh, our puppet in there, and started this whole conflict. And uh, a previous show, you mentioned that, uh, for Garth, you couldn't understand what the, where the violence was, where Russia would respond. Well, they got 15,000 people of their uh, uh, killed, and they kept bombing them and bombing them since 2014, totally ignoring the ceasefire. And so Russia got fed up with it. And this idea that we didn't, uh, that they, they did it on their, uh, that they did, it was unprovoked attack is complete baloney. And that's what Congressman uh, Slew Carbajal mentions. He keeps mentioning that uh, it's an unprovoked attack. I totally disagree. We totally uh, provoked them into this war. 
And also, you don't mention the rampant TB. You don't mention the bio labs that we have there in Ukraine. And uh, you haven't talked about the fact that the U.S. bombed, along with Norway, the, uh, the, the Nord Stream pipeline, which is an act of terrorism. And I think Joe Biden, the president, should be impeached for that and removed from office. He's committing an act of war without uh, contacting or uh, going through Congress first. All right, That's and, an act of terrorism, and you yeah. haven't talked about that. And I wonder why that is. There's a lot there, Armstead. What would you like to comment on? Well, I think we could start off with none of those things uh, are true. None of those things are true. Uh, and I think we've got history backing us up on, on most of that. So in 2014, you know, when, when at least the physical part of the, uh, the incursions by the Russians start, uh, there was a political disagreement principally over money and future policy directions. The Russians have a, a president who's elected who is going to change some of the directions of Ukraine that uh, not interested in joining the EU as the previous uh, president had been. All of these new policy directives were resisted strongly by the parliament. The parliament, in extraordinary measures, uh, forces the president out. That is not the United States uh, dealing with their government. There's no, uh, you know, in terms of provoking, there are no U.S. troops that are in Ukraine threatening the Russian border. This is Russia wanting donuts and Luhans. They've been after for quite some time. There have been discussions about this for some time. Uh, Putin told uh, Obama in a discussion when this was being considered, when he was making overtures about uh, wanting these territories, wanting to reunite, being an irredentist, that there was no Ukraine without Russia. It wasn't a nation, and that he was going to straighten that out. So let's go back uh, to has, let, let's go back to Andrew. Andrew, what's the biggest okay. disagreement here? Well, uh, the fact is is that the uh, sanctions have hurt us more than Russia. Uh, last I heard, they're paying 90 cents a gallon for their gas, and their economy's doing gangbusters just fine. I think uh, name's got, Putin's got a, what, 80-some-odd percent approval rating, and I don't see how Biden could have anything more than beyond 30 percent. His brain is filled with dementia, and they don't feed her anything. And so, you know, we have to pay more for our gas. We have to pay more for and so you can have your war in Ukraine, which, by the way, is taking $120 billion for tax dollars at least. And the uh, annual budget for the military for Russia is $85 billion, and you haven't accomplished anything. In fact, the war was lost months ago, all right. and all you're doing... Okay. I, I, I don't have time for a laundry list, Andrew. I appreciate the call, and I appreciate your demeanor, mostly. But there's a lot there. I thank you for calling in. What's he, what's he not understanding? Well, he's... The, the, the figure on the Russian economy, or those, those are, they're off by an order of magnitude. The, uh, the Russian economy is larger than that. The Russian economy is about the same as that of Italy. The uh, approval ratings for Putin in an authoritarian government with over a million people involved in their defense establishment and almost the same amount, another million people involved in internal security, I don't think we're going to get a real good read on what the approval rate are. But the numbers he used are not the ones that are official. We get uh, Putin's support. It's something like 75, 78, 78 percent. Now, it was 66 percent 
before the war. It took a bump and goes up nine points to uh, uh, to to uh, seventy five, seventy six. Uh, it goes up mm. to that after the war was started when it was going fairly well right. from the Russian point of view up until about so, May. So, now we haven't mm. seen numbers since May, right, so, and I'm not sure where he's getting those. Let's those from. let's go through some of these text messages. Uh, on the Stolberg Tatum line, one, can Putin be pushed into a nuclear war? Short answer, sir. Oh, I think uh, if, 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 if we were to misbehave, we were to, uh, to do the wrong things, this is a delicate balance, that yes, that the Russians have uh, uh, several thousand nuclear weapons. They could be pushed to use those, recognizing, of course, that there would be tremendous repercussions. But at this point, I think Mr. Putin looks at the war is that not only does he have to win to keep the Russian position in the world, to get back to that position that he wants, a great power, but his own power and, I would argue, survivability depend upon his winning. Right. He cannot lose the war and stay okay. in power. All right. Let's try, let's try to squeeze in Garth. Hey, Garth. Hey, I won't be long. Um, okay. I just want to... Hi, Garth. Uh, how are you? I'm okay. I just want to back up. I missed you last week. Happy Valentine's Day. Let him talk, doctor. Go ahead, Garth. Yeah. Let's let's cut the the crap. Okay. So I want to back up pretty much everything that uh, the last caller, Andrew, Andrew, Andrew is completely correct on on all of these things. There's no there's no controversy over the well. The only controversy is in the U.S. propaganda, but you know there's no controversy about the two 2014 coup in Ukraine. There's no controversy about that Russia is not stronger now than they were before the sanctions because they are much stronger. Um, you know, there have been over 400,000 Ukrainians killed. I think Scott brought that up um, before, and you um, discounted that, doctor, but that is a, an accurate fact. Or, or let, me, let me restate that. There have been 400,000 casualties. There have been over 150,000 Ukrainians killed but there have been 400,000 injured, um, Russians about 30,000. So, so these figures and the propaganda in the U.S. media just completely, you know, misses the mark on everything. And where are you Pretty getting your, Garth, 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 where are you getting your figures from? Okay, Dave, I was, I was expecting that. Well, it's a not fair once, question. Have, not once have you ever asked Dr. Armistead where, what his sources are. Well, because he, 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 he has. Callers that yeah. you have never once asked Armistead. Garth, Garth, one of his sources. Garth, so you ask him what his sources are? I'm asking you point blank, what are your sources for such outrageous claims? What, what, what were the outrageous claims? Only 30,000 Russians? 400? Okay, strategic, okay. strategic Just tell me. Culture Foundation? Um, what else? You know, you want me to come up with my sources, but... Well, okay. that's a fair. Um, you know, you call okay. in and you challenge the credentials of a respected military man, an acquisition. He's okay. lying, David. And he, you have no proof. credentials are fine, but you, he's lying. You have no proof of that, Garth. I do. You do not. Any, all, any respected scholar will tell you that there's no question about the devastation of Ukraine in this war. Uh, Russia is... Has not been devastated. I got one minute. Calm and clear with his goals. And as I said, Ukraine is being devastated. I got to go, Garth. Garth, I got to go. I got to go, Garth. Thank you for calling in. Doctor, I got about a minute. 
Well, let me respond to the numbers. The, the numbers that we've got, official numbers, you know, DOD, what DOD's telling us, uh, and uh, what the news agencies are telling us with confirmation, uh, is that somewhere the Russian, uh, the KIA on the Russian side, is somewhere between 80,000 and 100,000. That's somewhere between 80 and 100,000. Now, that's, that's, that's what we're getting for those numbers. With the Ukrainians, we're getting somewhere around 30,000 KIA. Now, as to, first of all, Garth gave us 400,000 uh, on the Ukrainian side killed. The entire military of the Ukrainians, the regular forces, the militia, and the reservists they've called up is about 450,000. So that means all Ukrainian forces have been killed, according to those those numbers. Well, we got to go. Uh, that, that, that he was putting out. All so right, we, doc- we're not getting those numbers. Dr. Armstead, we always appreciate the conversation. Thank you for your time. Now, please stick around while we come back for the news. Craig has an important update on the traffic. We'll let you know what's going on out there. I'm Dave Congleton. This is Hometown Radio. The 920 KBEC Podcast Network is presented by the Slow County Real Estate Podcast with House Swayze. Up-to-date information on the local real estate market on your time. New episodes weekly at the podcast link at 920kvec.com and wherever you get your podcasts. California DRE 01111911.